Welcome to our podcast series, Talking with Traders, hosted by expert trader Garth McKenzie in London, from where he's interviewing various guests on the topic of trading. Welcome to season three of the Talking with Traders podcast series with me, Garth McKenzie. Backed by popular demand following the first two seasons, I'll bring you a string of interviews over the next 10 weeks with a number of seasoned traders in my network to give you a first-hand insight into how they trade the world's financial markets so successfully. The first two seasons of this podcast have had over 20,000 downloads of the interviews, so I've used this traction to seek greater global reach for the third season. A special word of thanks must go to our sponsors, IG Markets, for continuing to fund this podcast and to allow it to flourish. In season three of Talking with Traders, I've gone beyond the borders of South Africa to speak to traders from across the globe. I'll ask pertinent questions of each of my guests to really try and get them to open up about what makes them consistently successful when it comes to taking on the world's financial markets. This episode of Talking with Traders now takes us to Copenhagen, where I'm joined by Tom Hogard. Now, anyone who's been in the markets for a while might remember Tom Hogard. He was a regular uh, guest on CNBC and Bloomberg TV back in the day. Tom, I first followed you when you were at City Index, and that was back in probably 2006, 2007, around about that time. Mm-hmm. And uh, I really enjoyed watching you on TV. You know, all of us as traders, generally, we have a, a CNBC or a Bloomberg's TV in the corner of the room somewhere playing quietly during the day. And every now and again, somebody interesting comes on the TV and you want to turn the volume up. And you were one of those people that I always thoroughly enjoyed watching um, because you were a straight shooter. There was no nonsense when it, when it came to your market commentary and your analysis and your views on things. So for that reason, I've really been looking forward to interviewing you. You've been a difficult guy to pin down, but I'm glad I've finally managed to get you on the line. And welcome to Talking with Traders. I'm really looking forward to chatting over the next 40 minutes or so. So am I. Thank you very much. Good, Tom. Let's get straight into it then. If you could, tell us a little bit about your background and what got you interested in the markets in the first place. I think what got me interested in the markets goes a step further than that. I, <clears throat> I, I lived in a family, a, a well-to-do family. And when I was seven years old, my mother and my father divorced. And my father uh, won a very lengthy custody battle. But it, it took up of his, a lot of his resources. And I, I think my father, you know, he fell down on his luck. He was, he was heartbroken. So uh, I moved from a 400 square meter house to a 60 square meter flat where my father would sleep in the living room and I would have my own room. So I, 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 I had this life journey from very early on where uh, I had things like, like any normal uh, boy or girl has to, I, 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 you know, I, I virtually had nothing and, you know, would go to school with, you know, with greasy hair and, and, and unwashed clothes. <clears throat> and when you're seven, eight, nine years old, that doesn't really affect you. But once you become a teenager and you become attracted to the <laughs> to girls, um, uh, what I love, I lived in England for a while. And one of the things I love about England is that when you go to school, you have school uniforms. That means everyone is identical. It's like an army. But that's not the case in Denmark and in many other countries. So I grew up at a time when, and this is very personal, but I, I think that 
if I'm going to do an interview, which I don't do many of, I might as well just make it an, an insight into my psyche of what drives me. So I, I grew up in a time when, when like Lacoste was the big thing. And all my friends were wearing Lacoste, but I, my father couldn't afford that. You know, couldn't could afford anything but a, a bare white T-shirt. So from a very early age, and I say 12, 13, there was this motivation to go out and make your own money. And so, and I had a friend, a very good friend, still a very good friend of mine, Espen. And he was sort of a similar circumstances. So, you know, we would sort of almost inspire each other. So he got himself a, a newspaper round where you get up at 3.30 in the morning before school. And, and, and I thought, well, if he can do it, I can do that. That's a great idea. So I would then do that. And then, then you would have weekend jobs. And then when I got, got older and I, and I was able to get other jobs, I would be a restaurant dishwasher. And then when I had my driver's license, I would be able to drive on Meals on Wheels. So throughout, I'd say from my, my 13th year, right up until early adulthood, I worked every single day after school or before school in one capacity or another. So I've always been very used to having money when uh, money that I've earned myself. And money that you earn yourself is really money that you appreciate. Yeah. You know, there's a big difference between giving a hundred pounds in a, in a birthday present or having to get up for five days straight in the middle of the winter, going out in the sleet and the snow and the rain and the darkness and earn a hundred quid for it. I show you, you appreciate that a hundred quid a lot more. So I, I think that the, the, the gift of my childhood was that it wasn't very easy. Now, I'm not, I'm, 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 I'm not telling you this because, you know, uh, I'm trying to portray myself as someone who's down on my luck and I, 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 I battled through against all odds and you hear the Rocky music. Da, da, da. It's not like that. But, you know, as you grow older, you also come to appreciate that having a, a blessed childhood is not necessarily the, the greatest gift that you can have. Yeah. So <clears throat> at, at, at one point or another, I finished college and I, uh, I got a job at a pension fund because my, my life at that point had always seemed to rotate about earning money. And I happened to be uh, an, an a trainee apprentice in a, in a pension fund where I was briefly exposed to the treasury department of the pension fund. And I thought it was immensely interesting because you have to, you have to almost set the stage. You're coming into a room, a big room full of traders, but it's dark in the room. It's not normal light in order because, you know, there's so much illumination from the screens and there's this hush hush atmosphere and you can tell that this is not some ordinary office they're, they're different kind of people and i was just so captivated by it and then around the same time uh, michael lewis who had been a a um, uh, a stockbroker slash sales trader for i think must have been solomon brothers in the 80s yeah. he came out with a book called liars poker Yes, and I I I I, I consumed Liar's Poker, and I think the, the 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 most telling part of Liar's Poker for me was that Michael Lewis was a young man who had travelled from a from America to London to study at London School of Economics, and and I, I just had this this thought that if Michael Lewis could travel from America to London, why couldn't I travel from Copenhagen to London? 
why couldn't I study at a British university? I, I felt that perhaps my family situation was a little toxic with, uh, with, with fighting parents and, and, and siblings that were much, much older than I. So there was very little in terms of support. And I, I felt the right thing to me was to leave everything behind and kind of reinvent yourself at a completely different setting. So it was a, it was combi- London for me was a combination of, well, I want to be in the second greatest, if not the greatest financial center of the world. And I want to be involved in the financial markets and I want to get away from Denmark and I want to study abroad like Michael Lewis did. So that was the beginning. So I studied, uh, I, I did two university degrees, um, which I funded myself, I might add. And once I was done, um, I struggled getting a job within trading. This is now we're in the mid nineties. And, you know, I did the job interviews with JP Morgan, Chase Manhattan Bank, Bear Stearns, you know, all of those named Lehman Brothers. And because I, I had a master's degree and I got good results, I, you know, a lot of doors opened for me, at least for an interview. Right. But I was never lucky enough to secure a spot. Never really figured out why I wasn't able to secure a trading job considering where I am in my, in my trading journey now. But something, they must have seen something where they felt, well, he's not cut out for trading. So I started uh, a job at Chase Manhattan Bank, um, but not as, a, not as a trader, more like a, 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 an analyst, what's called a benchmark performance analyst. Still directly evolved. I mean, I had a Bloomberg terminal right next to me. So still involved with the market on a day-by-day basis, but not in terms of decision-making, buy this, sell, short this. And I did that for three years and came up to the end of 1999. And I had been part of the transition of all portfolios from, uh, from national uh, uh, currencies like the lira, uh, the uh, the pesetas, the French franc, the, the Dutch guilder, etc., etc., into to the common euro, and it had been it had been a lot of work, and and because of a lot of work, uh, my team, the team I was part of, had done. We had also received quite good bonuses as a result of it because we had we had really worked a lot of hours. There was a there was a month where we did more than 115 hours of overtime. You do the math, you, you, you practically slept in that office <laughs> seven days a week. But it, it, was, it was done. And as a result of it, I came to the end of the decade and I was thinking, well, hang on, I, I've saved myself nearly 20,000 pounds over the last three years. I always dreamt of being a trader. It's, I had seen a leaflet from financial spreads who I actually ended up working for initially, uh, promoting online trading. And I thought, if it ever going to be, this is it. I was 30 years old and I handed in my resignation and sold my stock options. And as I said, I had a, a pot of money that was worth about 20,000 pounds, 15, 20,000 pounds. That was my beginning. So come 1st of January year 2000, I started my career as, a, as an independent trader, day trader. So the next question you should really ask is, how did that go? 
Yeah, well, that is the next question. And the, the questions oh, I well. have lined up. Have you ever blown an account? And then, and, and then I guess from on from that, how did your how did your early years go as a as a trader? Once you got to that point, now you're an independent trader. You've got your twenty thousand pounds starting stake. How did it go from there? So there's a couple of questions I want to address very specifically. Uh, have I ever blown an account? Well, of course I've blown an account, but. I blow accounts regularly. So I'm looking dead straight in the camera now. Yeah. And I feel that I need to explain that very carefully. But in order not to uh, diverge much from the path of, of explaining how I ended up uh, where I am today, I think I will, I will come back to the question of blowing up accounts um, in, in, a, in a short while. Right. Uh, I... <clears throat> I was hopelessly naive thinking that I could trade using a teletext service. So I would sit with a, a piece of paper and I would update teletext every third minute. And then I would write down uh, the, the, the exchange quote, uh, quotes from NASDAQ, the FTSE and the DAX and the Dow. And then I would chart it, I would hand chart it because I couldn't afford a computer. But eventually I realized I've got to buy a computer and my brother, God bless him, who works for IBM, got me one of those, you know, laid off computers and I got myself a, an AOL connection. So at least I was hooked up to the internet, but I, I didn't have the resources for uh, online quotes. I mean, people who start trading today, they have no idea how lucky they are mm. of being able to start day trading or swing trading today because, you know, brokers provide all the feeds, the quote for nothing brilliant charts uh, broadband is not 52k anymore it's like 100 megabyte you know i yeah. i had everything going against me and not only that when you were day trading the dow back in 2000 you had to pay an eight point spread you know eight point bid and ask today we're trading at you know some brokers that i trade with will have a one point bid ask yeah so 20 years ago wasn't exactly easy to make money trading and Quite predictably, I blew up within 18 months. You know, I had to feed myself, clothe myself, pay rent. Uh, I wasn't a, a house owner. And plus, I had to fund a, an account. And, you know, I wasn't doing very well. I wasn't making money trading, not at all. I, I hadn't figured it out. You know, I, if the market was going up, I would be shorting it because I had this concept of it being expensive. And if the market was going down, I had this concept of it being cheap. And, you know, there was some fantastic moves in the early 2000, 2001, very straight up moves and straight down moves. And, you know, I was consistently on the wrong side of the, of, of the moves. So by 2001, I was down to my last few thousand pounds and I was thinking, I got to get a job. And it was just, it was, it was very, I was very lucky, a fortuitous coincidence, but I was meant to go to London and uh, uh, have lunch with my account manager, a, a gentleman called Dan Benton. And Dan was off sick that day. And the CEO of the operation, uh, Stuart Lane and Kevin Taylor, uh, Kevin Taylor took pity on me and he took me out for lunch. And during the lunch, this is um, April 2001, he says, uh, what do you think about financial spreads? And I think, well, it's fantastic. 
uh, you know, you've got so many good things. I think the only thing I would change is I would probably consider having someone who goes on, on TV and talking about the markets, perhaps having someone who is a bit more well-traveled in technical analysis and is able to uh, articulate using a wider perspective of what's going on in the market. Because the current commentator from Finsbridge is comes from a sports background and he talks about odds all the time and he's, he's not really um, relevant to, a, to someone who's sitting watching what the odds of Dow going up or, or down in the day is. And so he just blurked out, he said, do you think you could do that? <laughs> you know, I said, yeah, yeah I, I think I could do that. You know, uh, I have to tell you, the first time I was invited on TV, um, I didn't sleep the night before. I was so nervous. Uh, I was more nervous about that than anything else I've been done in my entire life up until that point. Uh, nothing could compare the, the abject fear of being in front of a camera, wondering what the hell are they going to ask you? What are you going to talk about? I had written four A4 pages of notes of my first interview, which was on CNBC. And now that I look, now that I, I look back on that time, on that first occasion, I'm thinking I must have done about 1,500 TV interviews. And relatively soon after that first one, after I had the first 20, 30 of them, I never went into a studio with notes. Everything I ever blurted out was stuff that just came from my own research. But I, they could throw anything at me. I would just talk about it. And if I didn't know what it was about, you, you mentioned very kindly in the in an introduction that I'm a straight shooter. Yeah, that straight shooter came from just be honest about your own shortcomings. And if you knew the answer, answer. And if you don't know the answer, just say, I don't know. Because yeah. there really isn't any shame in not knowing something. <laughs> anyway, I spent a year at Financial Spreads, and then I spent seven, eight years at City Index. And the great advantage that I had working for these brokerages was twofold, in, in my opinion. One, I was able to sit and watch the markets all day. And I'm an early riser, a very early riser. So I would often be on CN, CNN at, at, at 20 past five in the morning head to the office for six and then I would often stay there till 9 p.m. And after from six to nine, I would often do a, a, an evening seminar with clients talking about technical analysis, teaching it. So I had the advantage of being exposed to a five minute chart, something like 12 to 15 hours every single day from Monday to Friday. So you learn a lot. You may not register it consciously or subconsciously. You also get a really good feel for how the market develops, up moves, down moves, duration of up moves, duration of down moves. And the second advantage that I feel was so beneficial for me was that I watched thousands and thousands of traders over those eight, nine years execute millions of trades. And you very quickly uh, develop, as, as, as I got better and I uh, started working on the trading floor, uh, also at times taking orders and uh, you very quickly learn who has got the right idea about the market and who's got the wrong idea. So you try and learn from the ones who've got the right idea and you try to learn from the ones who've got the wrong idea but by, by, by doing the opposite of what they are be thinking and what they are be doing. So as a, as a broker, one of the things that will deeply frustrate you is how often you see people when the market is marching upwards, how often you'll see people trying to short the market 
or if the market is falling and, and falling very rapidly, how, how often you see clients actually trying to catch the low of the market. And, 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 and the way that our minds are structured is that, you know, if you are just right every now and then, God, if, you just, if you're right every now and then, you get hooked to that random, that random reward that you get from being right occasionally. So you have 10 trades where you're trying to catch the low and you will remember the two times where you caught that low uh, within a couple of minutes in the market, soon back in your favor. And you're thinking, I'm really good at catching these lows. Whatever I mean, whatever you tell yourself. So you, you saw people engage in the same kind of behavioral traits, not just on a day-by-day basis, but week, month, on a year-by-year basis, just winning often enough to hook them, but generally the trajectory of their, of their accounts was a downtrend. Yeah. So when I, when I finally left in 2009, I was made redundant because City Index had had some very liberal margin lending to big clients who had, <laughs> I laugh a little, had speculated in Spanish property stocks. So if you, if you cast your mind back 10 years ago of the property market in Spain, it gave you an idea that was not a good investment. No. And they couldn't meet their margin calls. I think City Index just had to restructure. There was nothing wrong with the company right up until that point. So it was a real shame that I had to leave, but it was also an enormous blessing. It was a blessing because at that point, I was ready to start trading for myself and really give it my all. And that's what I've been doing now for the last 10 years. Fantastic. Similar, similar to me, I guess. I mean, I also left corporate world at exactly that time, 2009, and also went out on my own at that stage to trade and have been doing so ever since. But this interview is not about me. It's about you. Now, what, you know, we now fast forward, what, 11 years from that time. You're, um, you've been trading full-time for a living. You've obviously done very well for yourself over that time. Tell us a little bit about how you trade now. I mean, what is your, first of all, what do you primarily trade? And second of all, what is your, what is your primary trading strategy if you, if you have a particular strategy that you can talk about? You're listening to Talking With Traders, a podcast series brought to you by IG, a world-leading online trading and investment provider. If you haven't checked out the IG online trading platform, please do so and visit IG.com. Also, make sure you subscribe to the podcast series on your favorite podcast app or website by clicking on the subscribe button and you'll be notified weekly as we release new episodes. With, uh, with your permission, I'd like to just address something you said. You said you have obviously been doing very well. Mm. That's not an obvious. Uh, there were no guarantees that I was going to do well. Yeah. And when I look back over the last decade, I don't think that I did well to begin with. You know, I, I, yeah, I, I, I was immediately able to make money, but I wasn't making the money that I wanted to make. So when I look back 10 years ago, you know, we are doing this interview in November, 2020. And you know, if I cast my, my mind back to you know, November, 2010, you know, a good day for me would be that I had made, uh, say 250 pounds, 300 pounds, you know, and you do that every single day of the 250 
days of the year and you got yourself about the same amount of money that I made when I was working for CD Index. And from that point of view, that gave me a tremendous amount of satisfaction because I, I felt, well, hang on, I, I'm, I'm independent. You know, I, I don't have a monthly paycheck to rely on and I'm able to more or less replicate what I used to be able to, what I used to collect. That, that's doing well. But I wasn't happy with that because I knew that there was, a, there was an enormous void from where I was to where I knew I could be. And the, the last 10 years has been all about filling that void. The, the last 10 years have been me working progressively towards what I knew what, was, what, what, what I was capable of. Right. And, 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 and as, as I got closer and closer, I also realized, well, actually, this could, I'm going to move out of the, of the... But I also knew that I think my strength lies in that I don't rest on my laurels. I have a, a live um, Telegram channel. I don't yes. charge for it. So I think I, I'm probably permitted to, to talk about it because it's yeah, not absolutely. a promotion. You're absolutely but, allowed to talk about it. I'm on that Telegram channel. So I've, I've kept a, an eye on some of the trade suggestions that you pointed out. Okay. So we can talk about that. But yeah, go on. Okay. So uh, I should just, I should just for transparency, I'm, I'm not selling anything. I don't do courses. I haven't written books or software or anything like that. But I, I'm, I'm not blind to the world either. And I see many big guru names uh, who will sell an unsuspecting public to the idea that somehow a piece of software or a weekend course uh, is all you need to set you on a trajectory towards untold riches. And I think that's utter bullshit. Yeah. Utter, utter bullshit. And it is detrimental to so many people. So at some point, um, I started a Telegram channel and I did it for 10 people, would you believe it? Where I just wanted to show what a professional trader is doing during the day. And, and I absolutely hand on heart, hand on the Bible, everything that I do in that room is transparent. There's no after the fact. I would never say, well, I bought the DAX half an hour ago and look how, look how high it is now. And look at all the money I made, how I'm great. Everything is done in real time, for better or worse. And you can just take a year like, 2019. I think my track record for 2019 is that I made approximately 36,000 pips or 36,000 points. And very few people will be able to do that. But then contrasted in 2020, started off with a bang, caught the COVID crash. And from then onwards, it was just abject misery. So I had this the best February and March in my life made a fortune. Then progressing to blowing a lot of it in April, blowing it in May, blowing it in, in June. And all of it in live, all in front of a live audience where people are thinking, well, he ain't so great anymore. He might have been good in February and March, but it's, <laughs> it's real. And I think to me, the motivation for uh, running a channel like this is because there's so much bullshit about what successful trading is all about. But considering that 80 to 90% of all people who engage with a spread betting or CFD account 
end up losing? Well, you can conclude that because so many people lose, it's not the charts that you use or the charting technique that you use or the software that you use or the spreadsheet trade because at the end of the day, everyone has access to the same amount of software spreads, courses, etc. So there has to be something far deeper and far more, far more fundamental to successful trading than what meets the eyes. And I wanted to stand out in this trading world by showing people how I do it. And I actually get great satisfaction. It's, 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 to me, it's about giving back some of, the, uh, some of the, the things that I have been given in my life. So some of the great mentors that I have had was uh, Bryce Gilmore, an Australian uh, gentleman who's now retired, but also Larry Pesavento uh, was a great influence uh, me and and, and, and third, but definitely not last, least, is um, a, a gentleman from, uh, from your native South Africa, Dr. David Paul. Yes. And, and, and Dr. David Paul was, for example, he stands out in my life because he was the first one who ever told me that if you have a profitable position, don't start taking half profits. Instead, try and find a way where you can add to the position Add to your winning trade. Don't add to your losing trade, but add to your winning trades. And, you know, that must have been a bit like uh, all of a sudden, if you're religious, all of a sudden, bang, Jesus Christ. Yes, he's the savior. And he, not that I'm religious in that context, but it, it was just it, just, it just hit that cerebral. Yes, of course. Because the last thing in, on my mind when I'm in a winning trade is to, to wanting to add to my position. Instead, the way that our... Uh, <clears throat> we have a reptilian mind which has, has lived through thousands and thousands of years of kept us alive. And one of the reasons why it's kept us alive is because it's constantly looking out. Whether we are asleep or awake, conscious or, or subconsciously listening out, is there, is there an animal, is there a threat, is there a predator that is about to come and eat us? <laughs> so we have this mind that is constantly protecting us against pain. Well, being in a profitable position is painful because you don't want that profit to disappear. So we, we, we want to close our winning positions because that's the only way of protecting ourselves against that fear of losing what the market has already given us. So then a gentleman, uh, David Paul, comes along and he says, you know what, you're a good trader, but you take your profits too soon. I said, yeah, well, I'm still overall profitable. I said, yeah, but you could be so much more profitable if you overcame whatever it is that you personally need to overcome in order to magnify your profits. You know, you buy a 10 and you're thinking about getting out a 20. In reality is you should buy a 10, that's fine. But at 20, you shouldn't be thinking about getting out. You should be thinking about well, how can I make my position even bigger? So I, I, I want to tell the world about this because I feel that this Telegram channel that I have is the real deal. It is, it's a gentleman, me, who's not afraid to expose himself to a lot of people, not afraid to, to, to fuck up, which I do. Uh, I lost in that Telegram group in, 
April, May, and June, losing free losing months nearly. Maybe they were about break even, but there were some really bad days, bad losing days. <clears throat> because that's what we as traders, we go through. It's unavoidable that we can go through our trading life without having losses. So to be confronted with these charlatans who say they have a hit rate of 90% and, and, that, and that they rarely lose, that's, that's bullshit. Because the reality of trading is that it's the best loser that wins. And one of the things that I found so incredibly valuable through the 10 years, nine years that I worked in the brokerage industry was to realize that people generally are very good at generating profitable signals, very good at finding profitable trades, but they are simply incapable of taking small losses. Because uh, when we are in a losing position, we don't fear that the loss is going to get worse. We hope that the market is going to turn around. And it's very difficult to make a decision while you're still hopeful. It's very difficult to terminate a trade whilst you're still hopeful. And the reason why I say that it's the best loser that wins is because I have accustomed myself to take loss after loss after loss. But when I am in a winning trade, uh, to give you a relevant example, during, during the election night uh, a week ago, I was prepared to the teeth, but no matter what I did, I just ended up losing. There were small losses, but I ended up losing about 600 points on the night. And, that and of course, I was embarrassed because I'm, I'm supposed to be a professional trader and I, I just I dropped the ball or maybe I was tired. I sat on the sofa, traded throughout the night and I didn't do very well. But I swore to the people in the Telegram group that I will make this money back, even if it's going to take me all month. I did it in two days. The day after, or the, I think not the day after, because the day after I was taking it a little easy because I felt psychologically a little frail, a little battle-worn. But I think it was the day after Monday, I, I saw a signal, and, and this was after the, the COVID-19 vaccine. I thought, this I don't believe in. And I'd seen it in my research so many times before, the market overreacts hyperbolically on a, on a piece of, of good news. And then it simply just drips for the next two, three days. So I started shorting and I added to my short position. I added to my short position. And by the time the day was over, I had made back everything that I had lost on election night, plus another 100 points. So to me, that illustrates the very, very important point that you can be an average signal provider, uh, be a 50-50 trader. But if you are capable of understanding how your mind works, the better you understand yourself and the better you understand how your mind will play tricks, the better you will be with a trader. I wrote a 5,000 word article on this called Best, uh, Best Loser Wins. And anyone who watches this podcast, if you're really serious about getting to the grips of, you know, of your shortcomings as a trader, I, I strongly recommend you uh, read this article because it will really set some things straight in your mind, what you need to achieve in order to be a far more profitable trader than you already are. Right.
Fantastic. Now, Tom, you've spoken about the best loser wins, and I love that. I mean, every one of these interviews has got a little nugget that I like to sort of say that was the nugget from the interview, and that very well might be it. But to that extent, um, you know, obviously taking small losses is a critical component of trading, and it's inevitable we're all going to lose, but it's keeping the losses small that is really mat- that, 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 that really matters. When it comes to your own trading, what sort of capital are you willing to lose on an individual trade? Okay, that, that actually neatly brings me back into a question you asked earlier, which was, have you ever blown up accounts? Yeah. And so, so I'll answer that honestly. I blow up accounts regularly. And, uh, and I know that doesn't sound very flattering to me <laughs> as a trader and as a person. So at least allow me to quantify it. Yeah. I don't believe in having a million quid sitting with my broker. I, I, I just don't, I don't think it's necessary. Uh, when we trade, I trade with, with a broker that gives me 200 to one. So I don't, I don't need to have a, a, an account which is huge. Uh, I... I could have 50,000 pounds on my account and still be able to get a whole lot of firing power. Um, my trading size is big. Uh, I will trade, often trade, you know, the, the FTSE will be about 750 uh, to eight, 900 pounds. The Dow could be three, four, 500 pounds a point. The NASDAQ the same, DAX about four, 600 pounds a point. So they're, they're very big trading sizes, but I don't need an awful lot of capital. So when I go into a trade, I will, I will push the margin right, to the, right up into the red area, you know, a bit like a ref counter on a car. You know, you go from zero up to, I think it's nine or 10. And, you know, after seven, you go into the, to the, to the, to the red area. Well, yeah. I will move my margin needle right up into the red area. And when I win, I win big. So me doubling or tripling an account in a day is not an uncommon occurrence. But the flip side, of course, is also that I, on, on many occasions, then have to refund my brokerage account with another 25,000, another 25,000, another 25,000. Oh, I'm going to take 100,000 out and leave 25,000 in there. So uh, I, I, I simply just have this rationale. Uh, brokers, I was going to say go bust. They, they don't because a lot of it is, is, is uh, if it's a regulated broker, whether it's the FCA or ESMA or, or CISEC or, or, or ASIC or, or FSCB for South Africa, you know, it, the, the losses are written over by, uh, underwritten by the government or the financial compensation scheme, but only to a certain amount. So, you know, when we had the Swiss, the Swiss franc debacle back in, yeah. in 2015, yeah. I think it was 15 and 15 or when 14. When they, they unpegged the currency. That's right, when they unpegged the currency. Well, yeah. brokers like Saxo Bank, big solid broker, obviously, but they took a big hit. They could afford it, but Alpari, they couldn't afford it. That means they lost, and they were acquired, their client base was acquired by ETX Capital. So I have this, this rationale that I don't want to have all my money in my, in my account. So I may have a million pounds worth of firing power, but I will, I try to, I, when I give a speech about trading, I try and explain it like this. You decide that you want to start trading with a thousand pounds. Your, your, your account is a thousand pounds. But why stick all thousand pounds in the account? Why not just stick a hundred in there 
and trade well with 100. You see, the more money you have in the account, the more complacent you become. Did you follow me here? I, I, because I'm you're listening. thinking. It's interesting because this is very different to, to all of the other traders that I've interviewed. I know. It's a very different way of thinking. So I'm intrigued with what you're saying. Yes. And, and I know. And I, I kind of knew that I was going to be a little uh, apart from others. But I also also remind you that 90% of, of, of the people who, who, uh, who engage in CFD trading lose. And I think they will tend to take this view that they should have a big account. They should risk no more than 2% of their account or 1% or whatever. I don't work like that. Uh, and I believe that's why I am successful. I, I, I don't want, if I believe strongly in a trading idea, I will risk 10, 15% of my trading capital on it. But it's bearing in mind that I may only have 10% of my available capital in my trading account while the 90% is sat drawing interest in a, in a bank account. Well, I don't draw interest anymore because we're all living yeah. in a world of negative interest. Yeah. There is no interest. Uh, so I may have to rethink <laughs> that whole like, that, that, that rationale. But more importantly, if you are forced to refuel your account, it in itself is a bit of a circuit breaker in your behavior because you, you have to actually reach for the, the Visa card or the log into your online bank account and physically transfer money in. And that allows you just to perhaps, perhaps take a step back and say, okay, I lost a 50,000 pound. Did I lose it because I did something wrong? Or did I lose it because I followed all the rules and I was just, it wasn't my day? Well, if it's the latter, fine, I'll live that. But if you can identify, like I did on election night thinking, I might have been a bit tired. Some of the trades around five in the morning after I've been up all night and I literally hadn't been up all night. There was no sleep. It was just straight through the night, through the evening. And then out in the early morning, I was watching CNN and CNBC and, and, and BBC for election coverage. And I was thinking around 6 a.m. I don't think I'm as sharp as I was at 9 p.m. Right. And by then reaching for your bank account, your online bank and refueling your account also just gives you that idea of maybe I should just hold off for a couple of hours or maybe I should just let the day, because if you, the more money you have in your account, you just think, oh, I'm not worried about having lost this money because there's plenty of money left in my account. So I strongly urge people not to trade with a big account. I say, make it with a small account, take money out regularly, but refund when you need to. Yeah. But now, I mean, I'm going to try and press you for, for a bit, an answer here because I understand exactly what you're saying. And you're saying, you know, you put a small amount into your account. And if that small amount blows up, then you consider that account blown at that particular point in time. But obviously, you have this much bigger pot of money sitting idle, as you say, earning no interest at the moment, but it's available. Now, I mean, there must be a number or, 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 or you must have it somewhere in your mind, generally speaking, as to how much would you be comfortable to lose. I mean, I don't know. I mean, I'm not going to ask you what the account size or what. No, 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 no. I, I don't mind. Let's let's say, for example, you've got a million pounds, right? I mean, how much of that? And, and that's a million pounds that's accessible to you, whether it's in your trading account or it isn't. It doesn't matter. How much of that million pounds would you be willing to kiss goodbye on one trade when you're wrong? You're listening to Talking with Traders, a podcast series brought to you by IG a world-leading online trading and investment provider. 
If you haven't checked out the IG online trading platform, please do so and visit IG.com. Also, make sure you subscribe to the podcast series on your favorite podcast app or website by clicking on the subscribe button and you'll be notified weekly as we release new episodes. Okay, so let's take the practical example of of a million pound uh, disposable capital with a hundred thousand pounds sat on the sat actually physically in the account. Right. Why don't I just use this morning as a good example? Because yes. you know I can't make that up. People who watch this podcast can can correlate it to the trades of of, of today. I think it's the twelfth of of November today. Yes. Um, I had um, uh, I think I had four or five small losing trades. Um, small being in the single digits, 5.7 points. At one point, I'm up 40 points in the DAX, but it then goes back to, 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 to break even and I get stopped out. But whenever I went into those trades, I was prepared to risk about 5,000 pounds per trade. Right. So, so, so from, from that point of view, I think I had a stop loss in the FTSE of, of 10 points. It was quite a small one. Uh, so I, I bet about 300 pounds a point on that position. The, the, the DAX trades, I was long initially. Uh, first, I bought it at uh, 13,110, and I went in there about 150 pounds a point. And then the market began to move in my favor. And up at 18, I bought another 150 pounds a point. The market went up to 30, 35. I tried to move my stop loss a bit uh, to break even. Wasn't successful in actually getting the stop loss to break even. But if these trades had gone against me, my stop loss was down in around 85 and 90. So I was risking 25 and 30 points on, on each segment. So call it 25 points uh, on a 300 pound position. That's about 5,000 pounds. Right. So if there's about 50,000 pounds on the account, it's approximately 5% of my available capital. Right, okay, okay. So, so I think I will separate myself from the you know, risk 1% or 2%. I, I encourage people to risk more um, because I also feel that if you risk more, there are some advantages to it. One being, um, I know there are some, some arguments against it, but allow me to uh, put forth different arguments for the country. One, when you trade bigger size, you tend to be far more focused. You tend to be, there's a very... There's a big difference between cruising around a race course in a, in a, in a Formula One or an Audi R8 doing 50 miles an hour or doing 120 miles an hour. Yeah. And, and the faster you go, the more focused you're going to be. As a matter of fact, I once saw a, a seminar talk with David Paul again. Yes. Uh, he's getting a lot of airtime, that David Paul. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> he <laughs> was our first guest on this podcast series. Oh, there you go. Yeah, good friend of mine. Oh, he's a good man. He's a very good man. He's very knowledgeable. And he was talking about how the closest you can get to a religious experience is to drive 150 miles an hour down the motorway because you don't, you don't sit and think about, did I leave the kettle on? Did, 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 uh, did I feed the cat? Uh, oh, is the bedroom window open? The only thing you're thinking of is, is tunnel vision. You're thinking, oh my God, I am driving 150 miles an hour. Uh, and he, he talks, it's very Eckhart Tolle, you know, the power of now living in the moment. Yeah. The, the more focused you are on something, which you don't think about much else than staying alive when you're doing 150 miles an hour. You don't have time to take phone calls or check emails or, or wondering whether the kettle is, 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 <laughs> is still on or not. 
And I feel that when I trade bigger size, my trade selection is much better. And I'm far more focused on what I need to be focused on. While when I'm trading smaller, it's almost as if I'm giving myself permission to be a little less focused. Very interesting perspective. I really, that's, it's unique. And as I say, none of the other guests on this podcast series have, have put it into that sort of context. So thank you. It's really fascinating. But now Tom, However, we, we, we also oh, know that um, in trading and in, uh, you'll know, I mean, your wins and your losses come in clusters. It's never win, loss, win, loss. If only it was as consistent as that, but it never is. You go through clusters, winning clusters where you can't do anything wrong, but then also losing clusters where nothing can go right. I think all of us experience those kind of situations. Now, how do you handle that? I mean, obviously, we all strive for the good clusters, but we know that both good and bad clusters can have a negative consequence. The good clusters can make you overconfident. The bad clusters can, can, you know, can drive you into depression and want to give up. How do you manage your emotional state around the market and, the, and manage these clusters? <clears throat> with, with, uh, with focus, but great difficulty. So I'm focused on my shortcomings. I'm, 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 I'm very aware that I will... I have, I have, as a trader, I have weaknesses that I'm aware of. One weakness that I have, a very strong weakness that I have, is that I find it virtually impossible to make meaningful money when the market is rising. You know, I'm, I don't know whether it's because of COVID-19, the crash in, in February, um, but I know that I make my money and the majority of my money is made on the short side. I just seem to have a natural knack for pushing the short side and you know the market doesn't go down all the time no. uh, so i will at time really struggle to make meaningful trades on the long side that's a weakness that i'm working very very focused on addressing and i'll come to in a second how i do that this the second uh the second issue that i have is that when i am winning i am fully aware of my propensity and my proclivity to become too overexposed, i.e. betting too big. And I have on some occasions had very big profits when the market would all of a sudden turn very quickly, for example, like the COVID-19 vaccine. I was short that morning. And, you know, I, I don't mind telling you the, the viewers here, it cost me close to uh, a million pounds. Uh, it it was it was very painful to to uh, to see the market do what it did and feel that sense of incapacitation uh, and and feel a, a sense of fear. Now, luckily, these days, um, many brokers will have what we call negative balance protection, and that means that. You can't lose that what's more than the account. Uh, it's still pretty painful to lose 300,000 pounds on your account that you had spent the last week and a half, two weeks of really good trading, and you lose it in like, I don't know, 45 seconds. Yeah. I mean, it was, it, was that, it was that quick that it happened. And you know, so I bet you there are people right now watching this going, well, what about stop loss 
Well, there was a significant amount of slippage on that day, I, yeah, I tell you that. Of course, yeah. And, and, and secondly, I generally don't trade with stop losses because I, I want to be, I want to allow myself to make a decision on when I want to get out. And I'll have to live with the fact that days like this happen. So I, I want to I address your question in, in much greater detail. How do you... Um, <clears throat> How do you make sure you don't get over exuberant when it's going well? But I think more importantly, you want to know, well, how do you deal with the, the drawdowns and the periods of um, uh, destitute and <laughs> emotional destitute and, and, and emotional despair? Um, in April and in May and June, I did a lot of walks on the beach yeah. uh, in the weekends, thinking about how to address the slump that I was in. Um, I think I, at this point, I should probably also talk to your, to your listeners on how do I mentally prepare myself for a trading day because I think that's quite relevant. Yes, I mean, if you could tell us a little bit about this. One of the questions I've got is, is to ask, what does an average day look like? How do you prepare for the day? So uh, I think a typical trader would pour over the charts, look at the moving averages, look at MACD, stochastics, key levels, pivot points, etc. First of all, I don't use a single indicator. There, I have nothing on my chart. Absolutely nothing. So just a price and chart. And I mean literally nothing but a candle chart. Right. And, and that's, that's on purpose. Um, the most important part of my daily preparation is my mental tuning. I have a PowerPoint presentation. It's its pages reaches in the thousands and they are all my past trades and the way that i illustrate past trades is uh, there will be a before during and after snapshot so for example if i was going to uh, illustrate my losing trades today there will be a a visual image of what i saw when i entered the trade then there'll be a snapshot of the chart now with a few more bars on this next page of the PowerPoint with a few more bars saying, right, this is what I did at this point in the, in the, in the development of this trade. And this is where I got out. And then I'll plot where I got out versus what the market then did subsequently. The reason why I spend all this time going over old trades is because when I show up in the morning, if I don't warm up my mind to the person that I need to become in order to trade successfully, I will be the one that considers start taking my profits early when the market moves in my favor. And if I don't tune into who I need to be, it's like a Jekyll and Hyde situation here. I am this normal, well-functioning human being um, that goes about his life on a normal day by day, but that won't work as a trader. And, and logic should tell you I'm right, because 
most people are logical thinking. Most people are well-educated, have decent jobs, good family, good fathers, good husbands, good wives, good mothers, etc. But the statistics says that 80, 90% of all traders who trade CFDs can't trade for shit. Yeah. They, 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 they can't trade. So the normal way of being, the normal way of acting, the normal way of behaving simply isn't cut it. It's just not going to cut it for being a successful trader. And I know that. But my mind is this million-year-old stagnant mass that is trying to keep me alive by always being alert to all the dangers. But the dangers are gone. There's no dinosaur waiting in my back garden anymore. <laughs> and so when I am in a profitable position and my brain begins to tell me, ooh, ooh, aren't you scared now that that profit is going to disappear? You could buy yourself a new car for that money or you could whatever you associate your profits with. But that's just your mind trying to level the playing field because the brain has, your reptilian mind has one function and that is to make sure you go through life without pain. Now, every morning, I have to change my personality. I, I, I am no longer Tom, as you see here, casually is talking to you. I am Tom that now wants pain. I invite pain. I want pain. And I, I, I'm, I'm walking towards the pain because I know the pain, the uncomfortableness is associated with profitable trading. If I constantly sought out not having pain, it meant that I would let my losers run a lot longer because, you know, hope is a very strong emotion and, and you, and you're thinking, well, you, you, probably be, oh, you, you probably stay hopeful a lot longer than you become fearful. And if you wait until you're fearful before you get out of your trade, that's, that's not good. So part of the uncomfortableness is also closing a position, knowing full well that the moment you close it, actually it could be going in your favor as well. So part of being uncomfortable is also making decisions that goes against your, your natural urge to uh, to avoid pain, and if you have a small loss, you'll be far more inclined to be thinking, "I'm just going to give it a little longer," because you know it's not a big loss yet. It doesn't become a fear factor until the loss is big. Yeah. So part of my preparation also lies in it doesn't bother me that I had four or five losing trades this morning. I haven't had no winning trades at all because you know I lost. Five points, seven points, and ten points. You know, if my strategy had worked out like I'd hoped to, I would have been a plus hundred and twenty points. So yeah. who cares about who cares about losing twenty twenty five points if the plan had worked out and you would have made hundred and twenty five points? Mm -hmm. So part of my preparation lies in changing my whole psyche for the duration of the trading day, and I have to do that every day. There's, there's no let up. I, I, I constantly have to prepare myself to become that person who likes to invite pain into his life because I got a mind and it's a very old mind and it will do anything it can to stop me from feeling pain. And I'll have to tell that brain, I need that pain, otherwise I won't make money. Right. 
Interesting. Very interesting. So when you're looking at your risk to reward ratio on your trades, then, I mean, you're talking about you know, massive, you, you, small losses, like you say, a couple of points, five, seven points. But when you make it, you, you're looking for those big, you know, 10, 20 R trades. What, do you, have you plotted your, your risk to reward, your average risk to reward ratio on winning trades versus losing trades? You said earlier that I'm a little atypical from your other uh, podcast interviews. I am, I am quite certain I'm going to stand out quite a lot here. I think risk to reward is one of the most detrimental concepts in trading. It's a bit like buy low, sell high. Well, if you buy low, you are basically inviting to, to become a bottom feeder you know, or sell high. Why would you sell something that is high? It could go even higher. And why would you buy something that is low? It's probably going to go even lower. It's low for a reason. So this high, this whole buy low, sell high, more money has been lost following that advice than in all the world wars together. Yeah. And, and the whole concept of risk to reward, well, how do you know what your reward is going to be? If you go into a trade, are you telling me that you are now not only a trader, but you're also a, um, you know, a clairvoyant, that you are a palm reader, that you know where the market is headed? Let me give you an example. The market, you're buying the market at 10, and you have a target of it going to 30, and you have a stop loss at, you know, at, at evens. So you're risking 10, and you're hoping to make 20. Okay. What are you going to do when you get to 30? See, my argument is when you get to 30, the way I'm thinking is if it can go from 10 to 30, why couldn't it go from 30 to 50? Why, when it gets to 50, why couldn't it go from 50 to 70? Why limit myself? Yes, I know what my risk is at all times. I know how much I want to risk, but why do I want to limit myself on the reward side? You see, the best traders that I saw in the decade in London they were people who were capable of running positions and truly running positions, uncomfortable as it was. When you look at a daily chart, one of the, one of the aspects of the research that I am involved in, you know, that I involve myself in is how often does the market close at the high of the day or how often does the market close at the low of the day? And when I tell you that on, on any given uh, trading year, trading stock indices, um, 20%, i.e. one out of five, one out of five, the trading day will close at its highest for the day or at its lowest for the day. So say for the sake of the argument that today is a good example. I bought the DAX early. I had hoped for a better result than I got, but it didn't work out like that way. I had a small loss. But if I was right, the gap would have been filled and around 4.30 tonight, uh, 5.30 for me, 4.30 for you, uh, the market would have closed more or less at its high of the day. It may not have happened, but if it did, I would have risked 20 points in total, but I probably would have made 250, 300 points. Mm -hmm. So I think one of the dangers that people subject themselves to is that they are looking at a chart that is too, too small time frame. They'll look at a five-minute chart. But I will constantly flip-flop between a five-minute chart and a 15-minute chart because looking at a longer time frame also calms me down. It makes me make less rash decisions 
when I take in a longer time frame perspective. Mm. So the biggest money that I have made in my career have been the days where I've early on have identified a, a pattern, a setup that I think is associated with a trend day. A trend day being one of those days where I think the market's going to close for the higher the day or for the lower of the day. And there's, there's, you know, invite me back and we'll do a technical analysis session another time, but not for now. But I have identified a handful of patterns that is associated with trend days. Right. And so the biggest money that I have made have been riding those days. But I'll tell you what, being a day trader, but running a position from 8.30 a.m. till 4.30 p.m., that's a stretch for most people's minds. Mm. And so part of the preparation that I have in the morning is also being able to say, look, whatever I do today, don't be in a rush. If you're, on a, if you're on a profit, don't be in a rush to take a profit. If you're on a loss, be in a rush to get out. You know, mm. Be quick to take losses, but be slow to take profits. I have to tell my mind that because my mind will work completely the opposite. Of we, oh, be slow, to take your, take, be slow to take your losses because it's always hope. And hope yeah. is an emotion that dies last. You know, hope yeah. dies last. You know yeah. that expression? <laughs> well, yes. Oh, Jesus. Oh, my God. You're in a winning position. Did you know that if you took your profit now, you could get rid of the loss from earlier today or the, and yesterday. What's that got to do with today? Yeah. So the whole preparation thing, I would rather spend an hour studying my mind and myself ahead of the trading day than I'll spend an hour in, an hour in front of, of the charts. If right. it's one or the other, I will take the mental preparation. Mm. And then I'll just hope that my technical skills will, will carry me through the day. I don't care about support and resistance levels either. Uh, pivot points and, and moving averages. I need to be mentally tuned in to all the things that, that my mind can throw me off my, my goal. Right. Does that make sense what I'm it getting does. at here? Yeah, because I'll tell you what, 90, 99% of the trading population will spend all their time going through the charts, getting their uh, support and resistance, all this. I say a good trader will spend at least as much time mentally preparing themselves as they do preparing for the charts. Mm. Yeah, it's all about psychology. And, and, and a lot of the trading books will tell you it's 80 or 90% psychology and your method is only 10 or 20%. And from what you've said, and just from gauging the, you know, the, the interview, you've, it, it just appears to me you've just got an innate gut feel, um, more so than following any particular specific setups. Uh, am I right in saying that? I, I think I am... I think I'm underselling myself a bit here. I'm, I'm an immensely competent technical analyst who has spent 50,000 hours of my life studying price charts. Right. And so I, I, I think that I, I'm just at that stage where I realize that the best technical analysts don't necessarily make money. And the, the real key to making money is to make sure that you got the mental component right. That doesn't mean that you don't need to be technically competent as yes. well. Yes, it's marrying the two. Yeah. Yes. It, now, Tom, truly we, we, we're getting towards the end of our allotted time for this interview. So I've just got two. So soon, I'm just getting I'm, warmed up. <laughs> I'd love to talk all day. Um, you, you've mentioned on a number of occasions during this interview that you know 80 or 90% of traders don't, don't know what they're doing and lose money when trading CFDs. I mean, those statistics are not, you're not making that up. Those statistics are widely available. 
why do you believe that most people fail as traders and just can't make money? I believe that they have never been told by anyone how important it is to think the right way when you're trading. They believe that it's all about technical analysis. They believe that they're losing because they don't know enough about the markets. Mm. They, be, they believe that the reason why they're not bringing in the big bucks is because they haven't got the secret set up or that price action pattern that just will always win. And, and I'm, I'm here to say, no, you are not making the money that you know that you can because you could look at the chart afterwards and you can say, well, why wasn't I on board this move up? The reason why you were not on board this move up was because you were scared in the first place to buy it. Most likely because the market had already risen and you felt that it was now getting too expensive to buy. It, it, I call it the supermarket psychology. And the supermarket psychology is completely the opposite of what we need to exhibit emotionally as traders. You see, when you go into a supermarket on a Saturday morning to do your weekend shopping, you'll see that filet beef is on offer. And it usually costs 15 pounds uh, for a kilo of filet beef. But now you can get some lovely cut here and it's 10 pound per kilo. And you're attracted to, and this is the power of marketing, you're attracted to the, the special offer. You think, oh boy, I'm going to have filet beef. And you call your wife and say, fire up the barbecue because we're having filet beef tonight. Fantastic. Because it's cheap. And, and we are attracted to things that are cheap because it gives us a feeling of getting good value. However, if you went into the same supermarket the week after, the Saturday after, and filet beef, you know, you're looking for a, oh, I like that filet beef, but instead of costing 15 pound per kilo, now it costs 30 pound per kilo. You're thinking, well, I'm not buying, it, it used to cost 15 pounds, now it costs 30 pounds. I'm having soya bean burgers tonight instead, because I'm not buying filet beef, that's so much more expensive. However, when trends when when momentum begins to build up in a market our jobs is actually to sidestep our, our emotional qualms about buying something that has already risen in value you can call it the bigger fool theory but when we are buying we believe that the momentum will carry on carrying it higher and the supermarket effect is the is the way that most people are in their day-to-day -day experiences we don't want to pay full value for something. We want, to, we want to feel that we are getting a good bargain. And so the reason people are struggling to buy something that has already risen in value is because we, we don't want to be a fool. We, we prefer to buy cheap and sell expensive. And I, I need to train my mind to say, you know what? I know that the Dow has already fallen 150 points and the NASDAQ was down 200 points uh, the day before yesterday. And I'm thinking, oops. I have to actually sell short now, even though I know it's been, it's down 200 points already. I need to find a place to sell short and I need to find a place to put my stop loss. And I, I bet you that if you could look at all the track records of all the CFD traders in the world, the futures traders, instead of being looking for a place to, um, to sell short, they'll be looking for a place to buy. Yeah. That's why 90% of the trading population don't make money or, or, or not successful. Because they, in those difficult situations, are incapable of doing what they have to do from a trading perspective. 
because they are still in the emotional turmoil of the supermarket effect. Right. I like that. The supermarket effect, the supermarket psychology. That's another nugget that's going to come out of this interview. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Last question then, Tom, before we wrap it up. Books. Um, you know, I'm an avid reader of trading books, love trading psychology books, particularly I've consumed many, many of them. And I've been asking all the guests on this podcast series, if they could recommend one or two or three of their best trading books. Have you got any that you think every trader should have on their shelf? You know, I do. You know, I like a success story, but better than success stories. I like the, I am down on my luck. I am, I am shit at trading kind of stories, but I'm going to get my act together. I'm going to show myself and everyone else that I'm a badass kind of story. You know, I love the, the rag to riches stories where people get that, they get their shit together. They get their act together and they actually start acting in their own self interest. So, you know, reading stories like, uh, Charlie D. Um, I like that story. It's the legendary bond trader. He's sadly no longer with us, but it's published by Wiley. Um, I, I bought 50 copies and I gave away, uh, I gave, a, gave away a copy to my, uh, uh, to my trading friends because Charlie D he never gave any formal interviews, but, he once expressed in a, in, a, in a video at the Chicago Board of Trade, he said, you want to be a good trader? You got to embrace being uncomfortable because whenever we are in profitable attrition, successful trading hurts. Successful trading is painful because it goes against our natural born bred instincts. And I think that that book uh, describes that really well. So I would say, that's my favorite book. I'm also actually, I've written a book myself, which is going to be published by Harriman House later on this year or early 2021. It goes through exactly the same journey of me discovering pain as a, as a successful uh, parameter for being a successful trader. Um, I also like Marty Swartz's uh, Pitbull yes. because you know, he wasn't successful immediately. He was good, but it just describes this ferocious aggressiveness, this primal instinct that he, he puts forth in his trading. And he says so beautifully, I didn't start making money until I realized that I needed to be able to be a good loser. I needed to be able to make a loss-making decision and get them out of, the, out of the portfolio quickly in order to become a profitable trader. So I would say to people as a, as a roundup, if you really want to be a good trader, stop trading for a while and, and get your mental, get the mental compartment right. Focus on, on how you're going to take loss after loss after loss. Focus on the pain you'll feel when you are in a winning trade. Focus and embrace being uncomfortable because if you think you're going to ride into the horizon with big bucks, not being comfortable, not being uncomfortable, you got another thing coming because our psyches are just not cut out for successful trading unless we completely switch the way we think and retrain our mind and how we think. That's, so those are the book recommendations I would get. Charlie D, number one, number one book, and then perhaps Pitbull. Yeah, and of course I, I, my I enjoyed book when it's published one day. Well, yeah, I enjoyed Pitbull um, by Marty Schwartz, one of my favorite trading stories as well. And yes, your book—I think you said to me uh, off air—you said it's called uh, "Confessions of a High Stakes Trader." Is that right? Yeah, that is. Okay. 
So I, I would love to interview you again when that book is due to be published, do another podcast, sure. and maybe we can talk more about your, uh, your technicals at that stage. But we've run out of time for this podcast, Tom. It's really been an honor uh, and a great privilege to speak to you. As I said, I've watched you uh, since my early years in the market. Uh, so it's, to have an opportunity to speak to you and to interview you has been a great pleasure and a great honor. So thank you very much for giving up your time today. Thank you. Thanks for joining us for today's episode of Talking with Traders, brought to you by IG, a world-leading CFD provider. We really are privileged to have such a leader in the field of online trading involved in this series. Please follow us on Facebook and engage with us there. And a reminder to make sure you subscribe to the series by clicking the subscribe button on your favorite app. Till next time.